Episode 77 of Fitness Behaviour with Bevan James Isles. An interview with leading sports psychologist David Galbraith. Alrighty, team, welcome along to episode 77 of Fitness Behaviour of Bevan James Isles, your fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of fitness and all the benefits you get alongside it. Alrighty, guys, well, I have to say I'm, I'm pretty excited about today's show. I got an interview with a guy called David Galbraith. Galbraith, he's a author of a book that I read recently, and admittedly it's a bit more of a workbook, but it's called Unleashing Greatness in Sport and Through Life. Uh, sorry, in sport and life through the pathway of courage. Now, David Galbraith is one of New Zealand's top sporting psychologists, so he works with the highest end level of athlete and and basically works in the psychology of how to help these people be very successful in the thing that they do. And one thing I actually heard in another interview in my research and, you know, doing my, my interview with David and it was kind of that thing of that, you know, he's never been a big fan of kind of promoting the work that he does. And the book that he wrote is actually, it's all about going to fundraising basically. And I'll talk about that after the interview with him. But uh, so he, he was, because he kind of doesn't see himself as, you know, like when we look at sports performance, there's so many clogs in the world that creates a successful athlete. And to say that sports psychologist is the key is just unrealistic and, and not fair on every other aspect of those cogs. But in today's world, the recognition of sports psychology is a really important part. But you're going to see pretty quickly into my interview with David is that we don't really necessarily talk about the, the sporting experience. We talk very much about the, the human experience, the living life and, and trying to get better at it being you uh it's, it's an interview i really enjoyed we spoke for an hour to be honest we could have, i could have spoken to david for bloody 10 hours he was just a very passionate man quite a real soul and had really a lot of great insight to share so i'm, I'm not going to spend too much time mucking around before that but before i do um i just want to say a big thank you to all the patrons of the show you know who you are you are the people who really support me and you know in a really massive way you know i get a lot of great emails from people saying how much they enjoy this show but also you know the people who actually donate some of their money towards the show really really means a lot to me and so as always I just want to name a few people who are patrons and Robbie Big Shot Allen uh, he's, he's one of the good patrons Gemma and Glenn Mitchell and they are Team Divine and they're actually friends of mine and they've just recently had a kid and it's um they're just they're just really good parents and and you know, I don't know if you can necessarily say good parenting means you have a relaxed baby, but they, their baby is the most chilled baby I've ever met. Like we went out for dinner with them one night. The baby's just sitting there chilling, relaxing, and uh, I don't know, the Gemma and Glenn both have this kind of really beautiful energy about them, and I think maybe their kid's getting that off them. Uh, Libby Allen Hilda. Libby is, again, another lady I know, and she's a, a bit of a nut bar and uh, a very focused woman when she puts her mind on a task. You know, she's got a big goal that she's working on right now, and so keep it going. Keep all in on that one, Libby. We've got uh, Rebecca Spears, and she's Bullseye Spears. We've got Mordecai the Marvellous. We've got Bernadette Parry, Soul Calibre, and Mac Forrest Warhol Atkurst. And Mac Atkurst is a runner who's also an artist, so that's Forest Warhol. So those people are patrons of the show, guys. If you want to become a patron of the show, it's really simple. You go to bevanjamesisles.com. 
you just see the little patronage link there, you go through and what basically happens is every time I release a show, the amount that you want to donate will go into that patron link. Uh, it all goes towards me putting more time and energy into the show. But I got an email the other day from one of my patrons and it was really nice and they said, if this show disappeared, would I be gutted? And am I willing to, you know, contribute to keeping this show in my world and, uh, and I thought that's just a really nice way of looking at it so if you want to become a patron go to bevanjamesiles.com and you're just helping me keep doing the work that I'm doing so cool right I'm going to put the interview on with David right now so yep here we go I think you guys are going to enjoy this one Okay, team, I'm very happy to have on the show the author of the book Unleashing Greatness in Sport and Life Through the Pathway of Courage, uh, David Galbraith, on the show today. And just thank you for coming on the show today. Oh, Bevan, my pleasure, man. I'm looking forward to it. I've been thinking about it this morning, actually. Thinking, yeah, I'm looking forward to doing this chat. Oh, good stuff. Well, first of all, I, I always try to kind of learn about the person first. So maybe just tell me a little bit about your history um, and what got you into the idea of studying psychology leading early on in your life. Yeah, look, it's a, it's probably an interesting story there straight away. Like when I went first year at so um, university, so I took a year off between high school and university, and played rugby and worked in the freezers at the local freezing works in Central Hawke's Bay, um, and the freezers stacking frozen carcasses. Yeah. And then after that, I thought, man, I don't want to do that again. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to see if I can make it in rugby. I went to Christchurch to Canterbury University and took forestry, sociology, maths, German, and psychology for the first year. I had no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> and I played ter- terrible rugby, so that didn't work. <laughs> I got a C minus average in my, in my, in my um, undergraduate degree. And I was standing in the centre of Island campus thinking, shit, man, now what am I going to do? <laughs> And then I thought, oh, hold on, all the pretty girls do psychology. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so I thought, I'll just do that for a little bit longer. <laughs> the true motivation comes out. <laughs> yeah, man, so there was nothing profound. There was nothing like I just had this realization one day that psychology was where I was supposed to end up or be. It was just that one moment I can vividly remember it standing there thinking, well, if I want a hot wife, that's probably what I need to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> and then it just progressed from there, really. Like I, because of a C minus average, I struggled to get into any master's papers, and Massey was the only place I could go and do my master's. And then, long story short, I, I got my grades up, um, got accepted into the Auckland program, become or well, the clinical psychology program up there, and then started working on forensics. Um, through my my last part of my study and it was there that I had the realisation that that was where I was supposed to end up so it was obviously a long journey to get there but I had that moment in the end working with the Linkwin Youth in Auckland where it was like yeah man this is is what I was supposed to be doing and so I guess that's where I ended up as a psychologist and then did that for about 6 to 10 years as well as child, youth and family or our social services and then when my daughters were born I found it, I was just working with sex offenders as well as um, within social services with parents that hurt kids and struggle with parenting. I guess it was in that moment that I realized when my kids were born I couldn't maintain compassion. Mm, and really? then it just became really apparent that I needed to do something else. And I was a failed athlete in so many codes. You know, I thought, oh, no, I'll just do start doing some sport and started to put together a sport program. 
and obviously rugby was my passion and tried for three or four years in, in Hamilton to get into Prem Rugby because there's no one doing sports psychology in Premier Rugby back then. And they were keen as mustard to have a coffee and just chat. I think they maybe a farming background. It was always enjoyed talking to people over a coffee, so they always enjoyed that. But but they, we didn't get I didn't get any traction really on getting in front of rugby players and actually getting stuck into the psychology side of things and performance. And then one was probably second year after trying to get into that environment, I realised I had to do something different. And so then I challenged myself to live by what I was trying to work with athletes on, which is to be courageous as hell. And so I thought to myself, well, what's the most courageous thing I can do right now? And then I thought, well, the most courageous thing to do would be to phone the All Blacks. <laughs> really? Wow. <laughs> I was taking in Prem Rugby. And for and those of you the... who don't know overseas, All Blacks is the biggest rugby brand in the world. It's, it's the All Blacks are the best team. It's, it's, and in New Zealand, it's just the biggest institution, isn't it? Yeah, it's massive. It's a machine. Yep. Yeah, it's a massive machine. And, and so that was probably the most, it certainly was, it was the most courageous thing that I could come up with in my head to do. So shaking like a leaf, man, I was petrified and phoned the NZAU and said what I had was a sports psychology program I thought that could really help the All Blacks. <laughs> <laughs> She, she was so nice, man. She said, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, here's a phone number of one of our providers who's in Hamilton right now. And I was like, you're joking. It was like one phone call. And then I was basically that led to a, a wonderful evening where I went around and met up with a guy called Dave Hatfield who was working with the Crusaders, I think, at that time, or, or within that network anyway. And we just spent the evening and chatted about psychology. And he was a fixed farmer so we talked about farming. And long story short, he became a mentor. And then I guess that's where the doors really started to open. I started to work, um, got into Prem Rugby in Hamilton, and and then long story short, I just did that. I just jumped in. I was working as a clin psych then, but I came on board with a, uh, with a rugby team that did bloody well, and I just immersed myself in it. And I think what you said before, that whole thing about image and um, PT or training, was probably the opposite reason why I was doing what I was doing. I just loved it, man, and I was just at every training. I was almost like want to put my boots back on. It was like they couldn't, they, they almost couldn't stop me from coming. I was at every training, went to every game, travelled with them, and it was just a prem rugby team. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just got boots and boots and all there, and haven't stopped really. And it's just led to bigger and better things, and now I get to it full time. So that's probably the shorter, shorter version of the long version. Uh, you have had an interesting kind of trajectory in your career because, like, it's, I always find it really interesting, you know, nowadays, and we'll talk about, you know, a lot of your philosophies and kind of tools that you can share and stuff, but nowadays, there's, you know, you're working with people who are motivated to get there to their best. And whereas in the early yeah. part of your career, you were dealing with people who didn't have any life skills um, and, and very destructive. Correct. And, yes. and, and, Probably part of the challenge was even to just help them to discover that they need to change. So yeah. when you think about the earlier part of your career, when you're dealing with that kind of opposite kind of person who you're dealing with now, what kind of impact were you able to have or was it a losing battle? Or, or, and if so, when you were able to create change, what helped change in those environments? Yeah, look, that's a really good question because I thought, yeah, I think you made a really – you made a great point and it's something I've thought a little bit about obviously too and – I guess the way I looked at it is I got to work on I've worked on both ends of the spectrum mm, now, which really I think have. you're really highlighting. Yeah. yeah. And the crazy thing is and I think it has a lot to do with what you said before, which is about image. The crazy thing is the process I go through in working with an offender or an elite athlete is exactly the same. Really? And that's the bit that just does like it's it's just mind boggling how 
when you think about why that is or how that works, it, I reckon it does help us understand how to get the best out of ourselves and others. And the way that I look at it is the offenders. I just I love the metaphor of cake and icing. Because when I grew up, well, my old man and mum were they were good people, man, but we we were poor. Eh? Like dad was a shepherd, he earned twenty five bucks a week. Mum was a house, you know, home mum. She did all the all the baking, but we made butter by hand. We had a house cow, and we didn't have icing. She used to make great cakes, man. Like she'd make fruit cakes, chocolate cakes, banana cakes, carrot cakes. We never had icing. But every six weeks we'd go into the local city, which was Napier from way on the Wops, and a little box of even buy groceries. And if mum and dad were happy and we were well behaved, we got fish and chips on Marine Parade. Yep. And if we were really lucky, we were allowed to open the tomato sauce before we got home. <laughs> and it's almost like, <laughs> it's like I look back at that now and think, wow, I didn't even know it back then, but that was establishing the foundation for me to achieve, I guess, what I have, but go on to help others. Because all we had was cake. And so you just didn't have to worry about the icing because there was never any. And so if we think about offenders, they, they, they've got a shitty cake and a shit, and they've just almost like their icing's terrible as well. Mm. But the, the, if you go to the other end of the spectrum with elite athletes, they, they, they've got gold medal icing, mm. whereas the offenders, their icing's shocking. And so it's for me, it's ironical that yeah, their behaviour and what they've done, one's positive and one's negative, but it's still behaviour. Yep. And it's the process underneath that which is the key one. And so you can have an athlete that's doing amazing things, but they can be depressed, man. Yep. And they're depressed because they're infatuated with the icing or infatuated with image or whatever it might be. They're, all they're looking at is the icing. And their cake's like so thin, it's it's almost like, oh, I laugh when I go to a wedding, eh? Like if you go to a wedding and you, you this, usually see this at weddings, eh? Like the, the, when, the, when, the, when the wedding cake comes out, everyone's body language changes. Like most people do not want wedding cake. <laughs> and they're trying to pass it around on those little napkins. And people are actually physically trying to get into another part of the room or turn around from it. They just don't want it, and they don't want it because it's covered in thick marzipan icing, yeah. and the inside's a shitty bit of fruitcake. <laughs> and then people will cut off the marzipan, and they'll eat the fruitcake. But that's such a metaphor for life. Like I, if I at those weddings, I often say to people next to me, oh, I'll give the marriage six months, and they're like, what, man, there's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> and I go, yeah, but look at the cake. Because <laughs> i got two daughters, day one's 13 and one's 10, and I'm really clear, man. When, we, when they get married, I'm going to be in charge of the cake. <laughs> It's my metaphor for life. I'm having a good cake. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so I'll sit down with an elite athlete, and I'm finding myself talking to them exactly the same way as a um, a offender. Like when I work with offenders, I used to start by saying, "Look, mate, I don't really care what you've done. I I, I care that you've done that you've done. You know, you haven't done good things, and you've hurt people. That's what I care about. But reality, I'm going to put that aside." We'll get back to that, but first of all, we've got to help you find yourself. Mm. Like, who the hell are you? you? At the moment, you're doing this terrible stuff in the world, but I reckon underneath you don't actually have any idea who the hell you are. And that's where our discussion started. But with an athlete, they'll come in and say, oh, I want to win a world championship or whatever the hell it is. And I'll say to them, that, man, that's nice. That's, that's lovely. I'm really pleased with you. But we'll get back to that. And it's crazy. Like, I don't even... It's, I, I care, but I don't care. I care more about how they're how they're doing what they're doing. Like I get more of a buzz out of watching someone fail, emptying their heart and soul, and dying in the pursuit of their own greatness, than I do seeing someone that was more than likely going to win. Mm. And that's the bit that I reckon is the similarity between the offenders and 
the elite athletes is that the process of psychology in that space is it's about humanity. It's about challenging them to look at themselves. It's about challenging them to go on a journey of self-discovery. It's about challenging them to get away from the, I guess, the way that the whole world does it, which is it's all about image and it's all about icing and, and everything gets lost. And I reckon that's why the planet's in the state it's in and that's why our economy's in the state it's in because it's all about the illusion of icing and there's nothing of substance in it. And shit, isn't it ironical now that we're actually learning that sugar is toxic? Mm. And so it just makes so much sense to me that the icing metaphor is also there's the image the image for the psychology or the mind is toxic too. Is it, is it very challenging for you? But because the, the, the irony the irony of what you're saying is that really you're saying is that the, the job is to find the foundation as the person, um, and and if we can get Correct. that right, um, then you're going to be a healthy person and. In theory, Correct. that leads to better behaviours towards better results. But in sport, Correct. the reward is the winner, um, and the reward is the outcome, isn't it? The winner takes it all. You know, the, if you look at, you know, Dan Carter gets twice as much as a guy who's only four percent less skilled than him. You know, and so, you know, it's it's almost like sports people are playing in conditions. Well, maybe it's a worldly thing, really, that we're playing in conditions that are so motivated towards the icing that it's hard for people to see that it's not the right thing to chase. Yes, you hit it on the nail. Like it, we get indoctrinated in this. We, we get taught this from school. We get taught this in sport. We get taught this in the way society operates. Is that the richest, most successful people receive what from the outside looks like all of the, you know, the greatest life. Mm. And 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 the saddest thing about that is it's not true. Of course, we need you know, like for me, the the best example that you know the, the ideal outcome. Is a lovely thick carrot cake with a nice slither of cream cheese icing with a great coffee and a great cafe with great friends. Mm -hmm. Now that's the perfect picture. So we still need the icing, but the ratio to which that we live our lives of cake to icing is wrong. Mm -hmm. And no one, and most people can't actually, they can't just, they can't fathom or deal with the possibility that they're going to have a piece of cake with no icing. The fact that they'll, you know, like the hardest thing for me, which I see is, People, people struggle to make a commitment to do something for life if there's no guarantee of payback. Mm. And unless they get guaranteed that they're going to get some sort of payback, some sort of recognition, some sort of success, in the sense of that word of success, they don't start. Mm. Or they don't even try because they're not going to get anything for it. And I just think, wow, well, that's the very reason that you struggle with your own emotion, excuse me, emotions there and longevity with regards to being disciplined and maintaining habits. They're constantly looking for external motivation to give themselves the reason to be doing what they're doing, but that's the opposite to what we need. Like I, I love the concept of you get married twice. You marry the woman, ideally of your dreams or whatever, and you marry what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And you don't go, you know, most people go, oh, I'm going to do six or seven different things in my lifetime. I'm thinking, man, we don't have time to do something that deeply. For We've only really got time to do one thing really, really, really well. One's to hopefully generate some happy kids or a family if that's what we choose. And the second one is to find something that we absolutely love doing that's then going to make a difference in the planet. Mm -hmm. And those two things, if you just pursue that, you know, and you're looking for examples of it, Mother Teresa, there's a great example of it. A lady had no icing. And you can guarantee if you put her through a stringent psychological assessment, she'd come out pretty happy. Mm -hmm. And that's a crazy thing. It's funny, just from my own experience, I just went over to England to do some work and I stayed with kind of a very a mentor type character in my life and he's um just this very wise soul who's been had a big impact on my life. 
and uh, and he lives in the poorest part of England. He and, yeah. and he lives in this apartment unit, and it's literally like two small bedrooms. Um, but he and he's a very intelligent man. He could, he could have all the icing if he wanted to. And he's a school yeah. teacher, and all he wants to do is have impact on young men. And yeah. you just you know, and, and even for because I do have that sense of mission in my life. But even just going back and spending some time with him. And it was just a real realignment moment for me because it was, you know, I do get caught up yeah. in chasing some icing that it's actually not that important. And it was just one of those moments where I was like, oh no, he's got it right. You know, it is just that your job is to do your mission and, and commit to it. And and actually, yes. he's he, there's no sense of lacking in him at all. You know, there's no sense of that he's lacking anything in this process. You know, if yeah. anything, he's just ultimately fulfilled and, yes. and 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 he sees the impact he has on the world and it's so rewarding and, and I just came back from that experience and I'm someone who's pretty close to that normally anyway but it just it was just such a realignment of oh wow he's got it right and actually that's where I need to keep my focus moving forward not being distracted by things that aren't necessarily that important oh absolutely and our challenge if we think about that as a process of change is like I was sitting with an athlete and it's early on I'm going okay if we, we start talking about courage pretty quickly because I, I believe the courage concept or the value of courage underpins everything that follows. So I don't think we can even find our why until we've talked about whether we're going to choose to live our lives by courage or be a coward because it's that, that, that process of reflection on the underlying way we live actually frees up the unconscious mind to be open and vulnerable mm-hmm. or closed and repressed and regressed. So if we're living with self-doubt and fear of failure, there's no way we can find our accurate why. There's no way we can find out what's deeply important to us because we're deep. We're actually, brain science shows us that we're actually operating from a place of safety. Mm-hmm. And when we're in a place of safety, there is no neurochemical process going on which causes us to want to open the front of our brain and thrive. So if that's in process, there's no way we can actually get that until we operate from courage, which will then ironically open up the brain in a way that it generates the neurochemicals that we need to free us up to think and think ambitiously. Mm. Conversation for me is the primary one to start with because then I go, yeah, I want to live a life of courage. I want my life to be defined by courage, not being a coward. And I go, great, we'll start that today. And if they're in a relationship, I'll say, right, let's say it's a young 20-year-old male. I'll say, sweet, have you got a girlfriend? And they'll go, yeah, I have. And I'll go, how long have you been going out with her? And I'll go, oh, maybe four or five years. i say, she's pretty important to you then. And they go, yeah, yeah. And I go, okay. When you come home from your train and you're recovering and let's say she's in town and then she comes home and you hear the key go in the lock, what's the first thing you think? Do you think, yay, she's home and rush out and give her a big hug and say, I've missed you? Or do you think, oh, shit, she's home? <laughs> yeah. And that, So I'll start with conversations like that and then I'll say, okay, so you're a son. So how often do you talk to your dad? What's your relationship like with your mum? And I'll go through the whole world almost like a war on a fitness check and, and go, right, let's look at those and you tell me out of 10 about how pure they are. Because usually once they connect with courage, what we find is that they need to go and have some pretty hard conversations because there'll be places in their life they're not happy about. Mm. And it's not until they can get that alignment that I reckon they free up their mind to live frontal brain and then be ready to thrive. And if they haven't fixed those areas in their lives or got them as well as they can, like I acknowledge in some some people's lives there's pricks in their families and they're not the yeah. sort of relation discussions I'm encouraging them to go and have. If those sorts of people exist, they're better off just to cut them out and get on with life themselves. Mm. But I'm talking about you know your general relationships where you might not be quite happy because of certain things, mm-hmm. where you can't express who you are fully because you you know you're just repressing a little bit of being conservative and careful. You're not being yourself. They're the sorts of discussions I'm talking about because ultimately, in the end, 
whether it's your first-time runners, whether it's an Olympian going for a gold medal in a final, at that point they start. It's the challenge about where, how pure are they going to be in their self-expression. And if they're not expressing themselves fully with their girlfriend at home, there's no way under pressure in a rugby game that they're going to be fully unleashing unconsciously, instinctively. There'll be fear of failure and self-doubt there somewhere which will be holding them back. So the point of courage, I reckon, is the fundamental one. And then from there you go, right, now you've started to understand this concept of courage. You've got your homework to go and do in those areas. And then I want you to think about what you want to do with your life or what you really love. And then we've got to find that because unless it's, what is it, um, Steve Jobs, eh? Like I remember one of his quotes was, um, do what you love and don't stop searching until you find it, something like that. Yeah. And, and saying no a thousand times to find out what you really want to do. And I think that's a critical ingredient is we live in a time where it's essentially up to us what we choose to spend our life doing. And that makes it hard sometimes because now you have to be responsible. You can't just follow the sheep. Mm. Well, we still do, but. I reckon that hardest thing is to actually sit down and go deep inside yourself when you're quietly, um, you know, your mind's quiet and you've got a nice quiet mind and actually ask, what is it I want to do? Where am I happiest? Where am I feeling most fulfilled? And then you pursue that. But most people never do that. I mean, regards, let's say, you know, I come along and, and I have, you know, I, I do think, that, you know, have you built a life based off, based off insecure decisions or of, of fear yeah. or safety and, you know, and then you know obviously the job is to shift myself to a place where i can make these courageous decisions but when you work yeah. with somebody because a lot of people wouldn't have the tools to actually deal with those moments so how do you help them move towards that place because i'm sure lots of people listening to this right now are probably thinking you know you're probably hitting some notes with them and they're thinking you know maybe if i reflect upon myself i am making decisions based on that it, it you know there is this kind of well you can't just jump jump the bridge and try to see if you can make it but are there tools that you can help that make that kind of first step achieve more achievable or is it very much just be yeah. courageous and go or yeah no there are there's a, there's a number of I think there's a, quite a few ingredients that we can pump into the cake to help generate a product that we're really proud of yeah and I think the first one is the first tool if we think about it internally is to I reckon almost there's got to be a decision point where you decide things must change and until we actually have a decision point that, you know, I vividly remember and also I've seen that in so many offenders when they were changing is the ones that really changed were that they would say things like me to me like, David, I'm sick and tired of living this way. Hmm. And when I'd hear that, when I'd hear someone say I'm sick and tired of this, I'd be going, now we're ready for change because now what we've got is internal dissonance or we've got some discomfort internally. And if they've not made so, that that's key. But if also I'm hearing that without any excuses, then I sort of have, that's one of my golden rules, is no whinging or give up talk and no excuses. Because as soon as we've got whinging and give up talk and excuses, we're actually, we're actually um, nullifying a really important psychological process, which is internal dissonance based on discomfort. And often when the excuses pop in, we might be a little bit ashamed about how we've been behaving or whatever it might be or the way our life looks. We, we don't want to nullify that at all. We want to feed that. So it forces us to actually go, yeah, you know what, I'm sick and tired of being this way and it's going to change. So I reckon that's the first thing is internally, yeah, the way we talk to ourselves is so important. Mm. So we need to just monitor that and make sure that we're not making excuses, we're not whinging for the way things and the circumstances of what they've given us. Because I've seen some people who have had terrible lives change and make great lives that they were doing crime they were doing horrible things and they've been bashed and beaten and abused as kids and they had a horrible start 
are the ones that just go, you know, that is what it is. And they didn't whinge about it. They didn't um, use that as an, a reason or excuse for them to be behaving badly now. They're the ones that really shifted and really changed. So I reckon that's a key, key part of those ingredients internally. And then the second one, I think, internally is to have that chat and go, I can't do everything. I can't be a doctor. I can't be a lawyer. I can't be a physicist. I can't be a, a surgeon or whatever, an artist. I've got to actually got to decide what I'm going to spend my time doing because my time's limited. And if they can find what they love, then that's the second ingredient. If they like, if they genuinely, and it's easy to find what we love. We just we just look at some old premax principle, which is if you're not if if no one has no um, um, external controls on them, what do they spend their time doing? Mm. So you just watch someone across the week's schedule and say, "Can I have a look at your week's schedule?" Because then you can start to see what they really love doing. And that, that's the that's the ideal way. If you want to see what children really love doing, just watch them play, mm. and they'll go and do what they'll go and do what they love. So it's the same thing for us as adults. Is what, if we had free time, what would we do with it? Then once you've got that clear, that's is where we start to put on the external scaffolding. And if you go, you know, I, so if we just take us for example, if if we go, I want to help people change. I want to be someone who helps people achieve their own internal greatness and external um, potential in the world. Then you simply ask, if I could have anyone to be my mentor, who would that be? And then that's the that's the first external put of external structure that you need to put in place because that that again, you see how much courage is that going to have? Because you might you might actually think someone who's incredibly famous and lives on the other side of the world, and. And then that's where you essentially, once you get that one clear, because then if I'm working with that person, I'll say, oh, that's a fantastic person. Wouldn't it be amazing to have coffee with them? And I'll go, so these are your homework. So how are you going to link in with them? How are you going to meet them? And they'll say, but I've got to earn $5,000 to fly over to America to meet them. And I'll go, imagine what that will feel like, hopping off the plane in America, coming in the taxi, driving to their clinic that they're running, and you wait till the end until there's no one there, and you walk up and shake their hand and say, um, let's say it's Jack Nicholas in golf. Jack, I've come all the way from Hamilton, New Zealand, because I want to shake your hand and have a cup of tea with you. It'd be like, that would be massive for regards to internal motivation to change. Mm. But it doesn't have to be someone on the other side of the world. It might be someone in your community that you think, you know, because for, for me, the mentors often, they are around us anyway. The, yeah. key, the key thing to be mindful of when you're asking whether it's the right mentor or not is, does the thought of phoning them or meeting them scare the hell out of you? And if it does, then it's the right person. If it doesn't scare you, then it's not the right person. It should make you feel really uncomfortable because they're, out of pure respect of who they are, it should it should almost make you shake when you give them a phone call. And then that's the almost like that's the first ingredient. Like if you can have the courage to identify that person and then actually phone them or send them an email, or if they live within your community, actually go and knock on their door. The number of people that don't do that because it's too scary, the ones that do do it, I just see them, they, they just fly. It's yeah. incredible how much that injects into them self-belief. And it's like anything for me. The more we commit, the more we actually believe. And so that's a huge step. And then once that, once that's in place, I see people all of a sudden generate this massive because I've actually got a massive courage to actually make that happen and then it creates a lovely process. So once I've got the mentor, it's the, that's the key because then you sit down and make a plan. And mm. that's the whole idea of the mentor is that they usually have 30, 40 years of experience where we, we don't, it's almost like we, we're vulnerable by saying when young, we're new, we don't really know what to do. And that's what the mentor is about is it's about it's emotional support, but it's also about the guidance to make sure we're doing the right things in the right way. 
And obviously, I reckon a lot of mentors become good friends because usually the person that goes and asks them to be a mentor, there's pretty, there's usually quite a bit of alignment and values. So that that that's a really important point is you identify what your dream is, what you love doing, and you're going to spend a lot of your life doing and committing to. Mm-hmm. Find the mentor, build the plan, and then once you've got the plan, it's it really comes down to making sure that you've got the right supports in place. And, it, 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 and elite, that's where elite sports athletes are very fortunate because they're surrounded by people who yeah, are the worlds around them, don't they? At the game, correct. And so, if you don't have that, well, then you make do. But you still try and there are still so many generous people out there. And let's say it's rugby. If you're a half rugby player and halfback, and then play for the All Blacks, you might go and approach a current super player and ask them to be a mentor. But you might go and get passing coaching from someone who's practicing in, or running a first fifteen in a high school. So you basically use the resources around you to make sure that you've got the best you can access. And I guess the key bit off that too is as you start to put your plan together, one of the things I always really encourage people to put in is, ironical as it sounds, is what time in the week are you going to give away? Where are you going to do charity work? And so often people who struggle with change, if they had the mentor, if they had the plan, if they started to build the scaffolding and the right people on their team, and they also add in some... Um, I just call it charity, service. If they add into something in their week where they're actually giving back to the world, um, I reckon that ironically is a massive ingredient to help people doing the to pursue their dreams as well. Mm-hmm. And even though it's, it's the last thing most people think about, for me it's incredibly powerful. If you go, right, once a week I'm going to spend half a day teaching, uh, teaching the disabled to ride horses or... Um, going to help return um, servicemen's families plant um, vegetable boxes or whatever it might be. That that in itself, ironically, is a powerful motivator to maintain your own journey because from that comes pride, and pride is the very foundation to self belief and confidence and ambition and enthusiasm. So those all those things flow off that. But we don't. And this is where the key bit too is we don't go and be generous or do service in a selfish way to get more motivation. We do it because it's the right thing to do. Mm. And that's, I guess, that's a bit for me. So there's, so there's some of those tools I think are really important early on, and unless they people set that sort of structure up, um, I, what I find is that if you're a lone monkey, you're a dead monkey. You you, need, you can't do great things alone. Mm. We need Hillary climbed Everest. There was a hundred people on that British climbing yeah. team. Yeah, a yeah. hundred people. Yeah. They make they make it sound like it was just Ed and Tenzing set off with a backpack from Kathmandu. Well, I always think the greatest punishment is solitary confinement. You know, like it's like we need people. Yes. You know, yeah. like, you know, like yeah. the, the, the worst treatment you can give someone is to leave them isolated. And, Correct. And, and within ourselves, we have this thing of, you know, I need to do it by myself. And it, actually, it's we need to open ourselves up to people because A, they can support us, but B, actually, we support them. So together Correct. we're becoming greater. Correct. Correct. People have this thing about not being vulnerable when asking for help, but for, and for me, it's the marker of greatness. Mm. The greatest people are constantly asking people for their ideas. For me, the first way to tell whether someone's a coward or not is how much control they influence in their environment. Mm. Cowardliness behavior goes along hand in hand with control and resistance to feedback and closed mindset or fixed mindset, and it's all this. It's all just becomes a really vicious internal cycle with ah, tear themselves apart inside. But if they go to the other end of the spectrum and they're open and generous and they don't care whose name's on the medal, yeah, then then that's when the magic really happens. I remember listening to it was a um, Sharapova won the French Open I think about three years ago. 
and she came in smiling, massive smile, and the media asked her, why are you so happy? She said, look, I come to these tournaments and my only expectation is to um, give my heart and soul. I have no expectation of myself to have to win. And so for me, again, it's just that whole thing. If people can free themselves up from needing the icing and find that the actual process of doing what they're doing, if they truly love it with the right sort of people, generates a way that they feel that they, they probably fantasize what happened when they achieved the icing. But the irony is you get that before the day you win your gold medal or you get that before you win the championship or you get that before you achieve the job promotion by looking and investing into the cake. Mm. Well, it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting as you talk about this kind of process that you're talking about here because to me one of the points where people will probably have to really be ultra aware is that in that moment of finding love is to realise that I'm giving up the icing. You know, yes. that, that, like yes. some people are going to find like, a, like they're kind of finding the passionate life is a really interesting thing because if I find a passionate life in an area, like for example, some industries just don't get paid that well. Fitness is a good example. There's not much money in fitness. Yeah. Now people who work in fitness you tend to find people who work in it for a long time can often get a bit kind of dis- disillusioned because they they actually have got a passionate life, but yes. the financial rewards of the industry is not that great. So they start to get jealous yes. of the financial yes. rewards of other industries. But Correct. if they went and became, um, you know, an industry where you had to sell your soul to make money, they'd hate it. But, yes. you know, that moment in that finding my love, I also accept that that means that there won't be this icing, but that doesn't matter because I'm in my love. Correct, and the irony of it all is all of a sudden the icing comes thicker than you can deal with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the funniest thing too is that even though, and not every example, not every case, mm. but the, it's almost like the more that we disconnect from needing or, or wanting something and actually settle into, I guess, being very grateful for what we've got in the moment and doing what we purely love and enjoy just in the now – and then almost like just have the faith that tomorrow will take care of itself if I keep doing what I'm doing for genuine reasons. Yeah. That generates everything that we need. I heard some fascinating research where it was, I think it was either $50,000 or $80,000. But once you earned that much money, it didn't matter whether you earned $80 million or $50 billion, It became meaningless. Yeah. As long as you had enough money to have these bare essentials that you and your family and bits and pieces around you needed – after that, the money became meaningless. Mm-hmm. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So we, but no one knows that. They all assume that oh, if I have fifty million, I'm going to be fifty million dollars worth of happiness. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. doesn't happen like that. One thing you talk about, um, which I really loved, uh, was this kind of idea of how do you see pressure, and, and this is very much an athlete's yeah. kind of experience. And, and uh, yeah. uh, you know, like a lot of people crack, a lot of people see themselves as failures, um, yes. and, and those pressure moments in their life and um you want me to talk a little bit about that because i kind of liked the way you talked about it. i thought it was quite quite cool yeah look I, the probably the, the example for me which just really struck home was watching novak djokovic play Federer in the 2011 us open so djokovic is two match points down after four and a half hours and he's walking from the left hand or the backhand side left hand side of the court to the right hand side of the court and he's just nodding and just doing, he's got his bottom lip tucked up over his top lip and he's just doing this little wee nod. And they asked him afterwards what he was thinking and he said, oh, I had nothing to do with Federer. I was taking legally as long as I was allowed in between shots just to absorb the moment. Mm. And I went, wow. How, if we just stop for a minute and think about what he just said, 
And then I remember that there was a 60-minute program recently where they talked to him about his childhood, and he grew up in Serbia. That's my understanding. He grew up in Serbia when the Civil War was happening, and they were bombing. So at night, he'd take his blankie and pillow into the bomb shelter, and he'd lie there hoping they didn't hit the tennis courts so he could play tennis the next day. Yeah. And for, so for straight away, we're starting to see how his mindset, for him, of course, he, he loves winning. He loves being competitive, so he does like icing. So I'm never ever saying that we don't have those things, but it's about getting the order right, the ratio right. But in that moment for him, if we asked him what's most important, he would have answered, because this was, I guess, the short version of it, I bet he would have answered that I hit the ball as hard as I can or that I be myself. So he, in that moment, it wasn't about being careful and hoping Ferrer made a mistake because it was a million-dollar point. If he lost that, he's out, he gets 500K. If he gets through mm-hmm. to the final and then loses, he gets a million and a half. So it's a million-dollar point. So for me, in that moment, when I watch him play that point, there's nothing in the way his body language looks which equals pressure in the dictionary. It's, it doesn't. It's just they're, they're completely different things. The way pressure is defined in the dictionary is usually with an athlete is they rush the moment, they want to get it over and done with, it's uncomfortable, it hurts them, they're petrified. That was nothing what he was feeling. And it just what I built off that was the a moment of greatest importance in our life is a test. It's a test of our internal integrity about who we are and can we maintain that in that moment when it matters. It's easy to be positive and upbeat when things are going your way. Mm. It's easy. Yeah. I always want to listen. I want to see people when they hit adversity. I want to see people when the world starts to fall down around their ears when their pressure, based on the dictionary, hits because that's when we see their character. That's when we see their identity come through and how they define themselves. And so for me, the moment of our greatest opportunity, our greatest pressure should be something where we embrace that because now's the opportunity to actually see who we are. So in that moment, the whole world saw who Novak Djokovic was. They saw a man who loves playing tennis, and the most important thing to him is he hits the ball as hard as he can. So he absolutely ripped a forehand return from Federer's serve and smashed it and went on to win that game in the match. And so it's like for me... The pressure moment is something that we should run towards because it's every, it's everything because they don't come along that often. No. And so it should be the opportunity where you can actually go, shivers, man, I'm actually going to see how I tick. I'm actually going to see what defines my life because I'm going to see it right now and embrace that moment and want that moment and then essentially what Bruce Lee talks about is honestly express ourselves. And that's why I love the base jumpers, man. They just stand on the edge of that cliff and they're all in. Yeah, so yeah they are all in, aren't they? They are all in, man, because if they're not all in, they'll die. Yeah. And so a pressure moment, I actually love that metaphor because that's a pressure moment. When you get to the edge of a pressure moment, you then have to decide, am I all in this moment or am I a coward and I'm only just 50% in? Because if you're all in, then we'll actually get to see who you are and express yourself. There's nothing – you've just taken failure out of the question. You're just taking, sorry, you've taken failure out of the equation. There's no question now whether you'll succeed or not. You've just succeeded before you even act mm. because you're going to be all in and you're going to empty your heart, you empty your tank, give your heart and soul. And guess what? You'll either win it or you won't, but we'll see who you are. And the, the growth that you make if you can approach it that way, it actually makes it like an addiction. Those pressure moments become something that you want. And then it's no longer pressure. It's actually redefined. You can't now define or call that pressure moment anymore. It's it's almost like it's a, the elixir. It's almost like the moment of life. Mm. We actually get to live f- 
fully and unpolluted in that moment. And they think that's the key thing is once you start living like that, you die because you, you, you get old real fast. <laughs> Life just races by, man, because all of a sudden you start hunting the moment. And that's not how most people live. They actually want to avoid that moment. They actually want to escape it or if they're in it, they want to escape it and get away out of it as fast as they can or they want to avoid those pressured moments because it makes them feel uncomfortable because they start to frame it up as being a, a moment of whether, whether they'll, they'll fail and be judged. Well, it's interesting. Like I, um, oh, yeah, I love I love your analogy of that, and and I and I, 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 you know, it's like I just think upon my own reflection here is like, like I remember some races where I did triathlon for years, and so I remember some yes. races where, you know, I didn't get the result, but I had the race. If you know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. and you go to the finish line, and sure, I may not got the number I wanted, but I just didn't care because it's like, man, yeah. in my toughest moment, I was there, you know, and like, yeah. you know, and That's that was it. that was the appeal. It wasn't that. You know what? It was you know sure if I got the result that would have been cool, but it actually wasn't that important Great. because in that moment Great. I was like, I, I I went there, I went to that place, and yes. you know, and, and that's an exciting place to go to, isn't it? Well, that's where we're that's where we're truly alive. Mm. Yeah, and you what your little example right there that highlights everything in one moment. That's it. What you just see it is everything. It doesn't matter because in that moment you have achieved the greatest level or depth of success you can. Mm. And ironically, the lack of icing almost made it more enhanced. Yeah. Well, you just have respect for the people in front of you, don't you? It's like, like, you know, they were better for me on the day, but, you know, like I still did my best. It's like. Well, and the irony is, too, even if you had won that, the winning of it would have detracted from the way that you reflected on the cake of the race. Mm. And Mm. so it would have polluted the space, and you would have missed out on really identifying the depth that you took yourself in that moment to get the result. And that's what happens, I reckon, is the icing. It just covers it over, and then we move on, and we've missed the moment of actually finding out more about who we are. Well, one thing I'm, I'm curious about is people age. You know, like I'm coming up forty, and and you kind of um, it's almost like sometimes people are courageous when they're young, but then as the older yeah. they get, they get safer and yeah. that, that courage. You know, because we can. It's almost like we've found our place in the world, and that's where we'll stay. And, and yeah. it's like because we know this, and that kind of courage stops and. That evolution, that seeking of that higher self, kind of goes because safety stops us. Is this something you experience? I think it's a social thing. You do? Yeah, I think we're socially almost um, conditioned to believe that once we hit forty, um, we had hit those middle years. We're moving towards retirement. Just all the words they start to use about that period of time immediately generate a, a psychology or a mindset which matches it. Mm. They don't talk about 40 as being your opportunity now to adventure in the world in a way that you never could because you've got resources and time. Mm-hmm. They don't talk about it that way, but we should. Mm-hmm. You know, our children get, so my children will be another five years, they'll be like living their own lives. So actually, you've got to start talking about life in a way which reflects the way the 20-year-olds talk about it because if we don't, people start to talk about it like they're dying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and funnily and it, enough, they start bloody dying. Yeah, and society kind of puts that context on you, don't they? You know, like, it's funny, if you get Correct. injured now, like, you know, I've always pushed my body hard. And if I get injured now, the comment is, oh, you're getting old. And it's yes. like, well, I've always got injured. Like, I pushed my body yes. hard. It's, it's, it's just yes. injuries are part of the deal. You know, yeah. that, that context gets put upon you, doesn't it? Exactly. Like, I've just taught, I've learned to ski in the last two years just to find another edge where I can push myself to fear. Yep. And so I've got an extreme skiing mentor and a race mentor. I rip up the mountain and I just can't wait. And I see people my age going to have a coffee. Yeah. 
And I go, where are you going? And they go, oh, I'm going to have a coffee. I need a rest. And I go, why do you need a rest? Look, it's a beautiful day. Yeah. And I'm trying to charge around. I end up skiing with guys who are about 20, and they're looking at me like I'm some sort of old crazy dude. Yeah. Which you, know, you are. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's almost like the way they look at you is it's wrong. Yeah, yeah. And for me, is who cares? I look forty-three. Who cares? I'm starting to get looking really old. It doesn't. It's 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 another construct we put in that place. Oh, there's a group of Americans I saw it in a, a um, Time magazine, or was it maybe a National Geographic, where they're making a, an informed decision or choice to use steroids and say hit over seventy-five. Oh wow! Yeah, and they and they some of them laughed and they said, you know, they said, oh, you could get cancer, and they said. Mate, I'm 75 years old. <laughs> <laughs> and so they're basically making a decision that for the last five years of their life or whatever it is, they're going to use drugs to help keep the testosterone high in their bodies so they live fully and have as great a physical capacity as they can. And these guys are ripped, man. Yeah. They, on the pictures, they look like they're, obviously their faces are old, but their bodies are like, holy moly. And so that was for, obviously that's a, huge, that's a huge step to take. But what it really highlighted for me again is the way that we construe our world is based on how we think about the world. They weren't thinking, I'm, I'm getting close to death. They were going, I'm going, to make, I'm going to burn like a bright candle and make the most of my last years as I can. But I reckon that, that's what we've got to do with, irrespective of our age. And so that's the bit for me. Once we, those middle years that you talk about, I reckon it is. I reckon it's a social construct that we then play out and we live it because that's what we, we un, unconsciously have learned that that's how the world ticks, so therefore we follow it like a sheep. But there are examples out there where the people who aren't like that, and they've, they've just realized it, that that's actually not true. Mm-hmm. And so it's an opportunity like it's, I, I, I want to live, I, it's almost like at the moment I'm trying to live my adventures through my daughters, and people go, oh, that's, that's enmeshment, that's really unhealthy, they've got to live their own lives. I go to hell with that, man. My daughters are going to be 18, 19 years old in five years and they'll be probably living around the world and I won't see them. Mm. I want to spend as much. If they want to go skiing, I'm going to learn to go skiing. The other one came in the day and said, I want to learn to surf. I'm petrified of the ocean. And I go, okay, let's learn to surf. <laughs> <laughs> and if that means I have to chuck the bloody surfboards on top of the truck and take her out there to do surf life-saving, then that's what I'm going to do for the next five years. Mm. Of course, she'll still have her friends, but I'm going to be living my life too. And that means I get to spend the odd, more odd day with my daughters, which is what the cake's actually about anyway. That's that's what I'm going to do. And if I, you know, one day I will be old, but until I wake up and I can't do something, I'm not old. Well, just on a personal level, what are your struggles then? Like, and, and, and like, you know, because it seems like you are definitely living what you preach. Um, yeah. And your attitude is pretty good. But, you know, I sometimes wonder, you know, like I know my position, you almost. The world perceives you that you're perfect if you get put in certain positions, and it's far from true because we all have our struggles. Yeah. Um, and I think it's almost important that we do show, you know, the things that we need to work on within ourselves. And so when you reflect upon yourself, where are the where's the growth within you? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point because it's the crazy thing is it's massive. Like when I was 29, as a training clinical psychologist, I was having more panic attacks than people who come and see me with anxiety. Really? They'd, be sitting there, they'd be sitting there telling me about their anxiety, and I'm thinking, man, there's nothing can be doing. And it was. I was. I was in a place where if I hadn't had the realization through my training about what was happening to me, 
and then had the tools about understanding that, it would have done me in, man. I would have ended up in psychiatric care. I'm like, I'm really clear that that's where I was heading. And even my supervisor back then said, David, I'm not sure whether you're safe to practice. And I just looked at him and went, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know that, man. <laughs> so that was, a, that was a real difficult time. My late 20s, man, they were a struggle. It was, it was, seriously, it was seriously hard. And, and that all stemmed from a deep, deep fear of being um, inadequate or judged or not liked um, or people not liking me or not fitting in. Like, I'm really clear that's what it was. That was my deepest fear is that people actually wouldn't like who I was. I would be seen as th- thick or whatever it might be. So I had many derivatives. And even today, my greatest struggle is to free up from what people think about me. And what worrying about whether I'm doing a good job or worried about um, whether they like me. So it's still incredibly powerful. Like it's, it's abated. I don't have panic attacks anymore, <laughs> which is fantastic because essentially all I did was where am I? Where am I scaredest? Where am I having those panic attacks? And then I said, what's the most courageous thing to do? And I went and chucked myself in the deep end, mm-hmm. and then basically approached those things. And 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 then it's been psychology speak. It's called graduated exposure. So I just I went and just a, you know confronted them really yeah. and then they got me through it and it, as it does but I still notice the remnants of it now and so for example like, like I swear a little bit yeah and when I when the when the environment's right and the and the groups are right it's all I, out. I, I will just use it as an opportunity to be all in yep and then sometimes people give me feedback and they say man because with my daughters they have no the, the, the worst word in our family of my children growing up has been the word stupid yep so when we use the word stupid in our family, it's like, whoa, <laughs> that's a really bad word. So they have no idea their daddy's like this. And, and then people will say to me, and some of those groups, they'll say, oh, I think you should stop swearing. And I'll say to them, if I stop swearing, I'll start caring. And if I start caring, I'm going to have panic attacks again. Mm-hmm. I've got to make sure that I keep this swearing up in the right place at the right time because it's my ongoing little booster that I give myself to say to my head, David, I don't actually give a shit. Yep. I've got to stop caring what people think because deep, deep down, I'm a bloody good husband. I work as hard as I can to love my wife. I try my best to be a good dad and I'm trying my hardest to make the world a better place. Yeah. After that, nothing matters. Yeah. Whether people like me or not, at the end of the day, they're not going to be there when I pass away. Mm-hmm. But I want my daughters to come around with their boyfriends. I want my daughters to come around and say, Daddy, we want you to be there for the birth of our children. I want my wife to grow old with me. That's what matters. And so until I can break free from my fears of upsetting people, I'm never going to be pure. So I've, 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 I've got to keep doing that. Like at my weekly schedule now, I keep finding places to scare the shit out of myself because unless I'm scared, I'm complacent. Unless I'm scared, I've become comfortable. And if I become comfortable, it's more than likely I'm going to be transgressing and falling back into all my old habits, which is worry about what other people think. So I keep setting my week up each week to be scared in my own professional development, which is through my mentoring. I push myself to be scared in the way of certain places about where I really care about whether people like me or not. So it might be a boss or a coach that I want to be involved with. I'll actually use those opportunities to go along. And when they say, what do you think, David? I just go, blah, 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 blah. And they look at me like, really? And I'll just say exactly what's on my mind, even though it could be right way off the planet. I force myself to say it mm. and, and then just get on with it. And so I'm, it's almost like a weekly thing. It's no different than physical fitness Mental fitness and mental toughness is something that needs to be worked as actively, possibly even more actively, because it's it's like a, I reckon a physical muscle is it's it, it will still be there for us if we need, but the mental muscle 
it's crazy if you if if you if you fail to feed it or train it it can regress so fast so if you're living from courage um, for 50 days and then one day you live from fear and self-doubt it just does you in mm-hmm. and so it's it's really important that we wherever we're vulnerable we approach those things I remember when I was really working hard on pushing through my panic I used to go and speak in the public speaking square in Pukekohe and give public speeches. I'd, ra- I'd go in early in the morning because there wasn't so many people and I'd be, pa- I'd be having panic attacks in the way because I knew what I was going to do. And I'd stand up on the little talking squ- circle that they had there in the public uh, civic centre. And like, for example, I'd give a talk on plastic milk bottles. I have a couple of plastic milk bottles. And I'd say the reason that we abuse children in this world is because we don't pick up our rubbish. And I'd give this whole speech on it. <laughs> and then I'd pop down from there. My heart would be panicking. I'd go back to my truck and I'd be saying to myself, I'll learn not to care. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd drive home. And then I, if I'm working with offenders, I'd go and at least say it's a child youth and family. I'd sit in the first meetings with those families and I'd say, before we start, I just need to say it. it's probably likely we're going to end up in conflict today. And so I'm actually, because that would be one of my greatest fears, is that I, people wouldn't like me or that I'd upset them. Mm. And so then I'd, I'd say, well, what do you mean? And I'd say, well, I'm actually committing that if you say stuff that I don't agree with the way you parent, I'm going to challenge you on that. Is that okay? And they'd say, yeah, of course, we want you to be honest. And that was a crazy thing, is it just frees you up. Yeah. But I used to drive on the motorway slow as well just to annoy people, just to learn how to get over my fear of upsetting them. So yeah. I'd do little things all the time. But even now, sometimes I'll just chuck some of those things back into my weekly schedule to push back into that space of where I'm afraid of upsetting people or afraid of being judged and go and do it anyway. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I make it quite an important ritual each week to do two or three things like that as well as pursue um, areas in life as a metaphor for growth. So, for example, you can get quite comfortable being a dad and a, and a husband, so it's it's really hard to keep finding the edge in that area. Yep. And so it's usually a professional edge or a hobby that that's the edge that we find that helps us really stretch our our, our mind and be uncomfortable. Mm. So, for example, if someone's in finances, for example, if they if they want to improve their financial situation, that's who's their mentor and 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 how are they doing their investing and where are they investing each week that's making them feel really nervous and uh, scared because that's the edge that's going to help them grow. And so, skiing for me, that's become my edge is that. You know, you just go steeper and then you get scared again and you just go steeper. <laughs> and so the, that's why I've got the mentor and I've done the first level mountaineering course. So it's just trying to find that edge because when I'm, when I'm scared, I then ask myself, so how am I also like this in other areas of my life? So it becomes the parallel. So I, the, the vulnerabilities, my vulnerabilities are really deep, they're incredibly powerful. They're, they're obviously nowhere near as powerful as they now were when I was in my 20s. But it's ironically, I've actually turned it around and made it my greatest strength because I, if I hadn't had those, I wouldn't be talking to you now. Mm. The funny thing was, if I hadn't had those in my 20s, I probably would be somewhere in North America now on a guiding service or working with skiing or something ridiculous. But I would have lived a different life. Mm. So it's actually, the, it's almost, I'm not sure whether it's calm or fate or whatever it is, but that struggle, my personal struggle psychologically, and everyone has them, if we can turn and embrace them, and spend some time in them figuring out who we are and how we tick and then use it as a friend, it becomes the red flag which helps keep us on track. I also think uh, the, the one thing it gives us is is a sense of trust in our darkest moments. You know, yeah, like, yeah. You know, you know that in those true. moments when we struggle, it's like, no, I know where I need to go now instead of yes, be destructive or, or hurt my correct. world or, or you correct. know. It's that kind of fundamental sense of, 
I'm going to be okay. Just trust yes. the process or whatever it is that, that makes Correct. you get through this. Correct. And then we find the then we find the power to make our own happiness. Mm, yeah. Because we we become very centered and quiet inside, and we can sit with a cup of tea and spend the morning just reflecting quietly. And it's it's crazy. We no longer need the external um, things or people to make us happy anymore. Mm, mm. Yeah, we can find that internally, and that's man. Once you get there, that's pretty powerful with regards to then how you can open yourself selves up to love others. Yeah. So yeah. your children and your wife, for example, your husband, whatever it is, and and that's when I reckon all of a sudden we've found the meaning of life. Yeah. Well, it's interesting going back to my 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 kind of mentor who I was talking about earlier in England, and is that whole how do you look at others in the world? Are they a threat or are, are you helping them move forward? Yes. You know, and um and and you know th- that's what I love is that kind of that place where I get to myself where it's like oh I'm just here to help others blossom, you know, they're not a threat to my existence, my experience in the world. And um, <clears throat> that's a much healthier outlook than everyone's against me or, or they're trying to restrict me or, you know, that kind of, that mindset that actually works against you. Correct. Generosity is an incredibly powerful value. And ironically, it creates so much abundance. Yeah. I remember the guy called Steve, Steve Seibold who wrote the book 177 Mental Toughness Secrets of the World Class. I think that's what it was called. And I remember listening to one of his podcasts, and they asked him. He said they asked him why he'd written his book on all of his secrets, <clears throat> and then he wrote a coaching manual to go with it, so people could actually know how to what questions to ask. And I can't remember exactly what he said, but what I took from it is the moment you are generous, you progress yourself massively forward in time. So you give things away, and then as soon as you give things away, you've actually progressed them, and you progress you. Mm-hmm. And so there's nothing other than good that comes from being generous. And like I think I remember too, he, he was making the point that you don't be generous to get. Yeah, you just it's, be it's, generous to be generous. Yeah. So it's not it's not I'm only doing because I get a benefit. It's actually I'm just Correct. doing because it it's good for the world. Correct. Like, there will be a benefit, but that's not the motivator. Yeah, exactly. And <clears> another another one was Steve Covey, where he and his I listened to his audios. His dad wrote a book. He spent his life writing one book for sixteen people. And no one knew who wrote the book. He just wrote this book and then went and delivered it to the 16 people via post or in their mailbox or whatever it was. Wow. And no one knew who did it. And I just went, man, that's amazing. Wow. Spending your whole life writing one book for 16 people to read. It was something on like some sort of something to do with council or something. So it was a really out there topic yep. about making the community better. But that was like a, that's an ultimate gesture of generosity. Yeah. And so we've got. To, I reckon we've got to hold to that because from from that, I think everything else flourishes. Hey, um, you know, I've, I've taken an hour of your time. Maybe just just one last question. Um, just for those listening, you know, because my audience obviously kind of knows what I'm about, and uh, yeah. at the same time, but you know, I, I suppose for people who are thinking, you know, I, you know, I'm sure they got a lot from today's conversation because you, you've got some great stuff there. What would be kind of your? I know it's hard to say one message, but you know, what would be your key kind of thing to take away? Um, we need to redefine, I reckon, what we see as success. Mm. And we need to redefine what was considered to be most important in our lives. Because that, I reckon, is the very core of our minds or the very core of psychology. Because deep, deep down, we all have a definition about what success is. Mm. And it's that definition that then allows us or then leads to us to evaluate 
our progress or our day or how others around us are behaving and whether we're happy or not. Mm-hmm. And while we have success equals outcome or success equals icing, I think we're doomed. And until we can actually make success and the most important thing equal the cake or the process, which is like you defined what you described before with your own um, tri- triathlon race, mm-hmm. We're, we're actually limiting ourselves and those around us, and that, that's got to be the that's got to be the core thing. You know, like a farming metaphor for me is if you drive down the middle of a road on a dairy farm, and they've got two identical farms, the farm on the left on the top of their strategic plan, they've got success equals fat happy cows, and on the other side of the road, the plant the farm's got on the top of their strategic plan success equals milk fat solids or productivity and profit. Those two farms are going to be fundamentally different farms. The farm on the left with fat happy cows will have great water quality. They'll have long grass. The cows will be looking in great nick. There'll be fewer cows, better quality milk. You go to dinner in that house and the husband and wife will be cuddling. The TV won't be on. They'll be playing probably coast old-time music. The children will be laughing. The house will be a mess. It'll just be a beautiful place for growing children. The other side of the road will be tense and quiet and tidy and the farmer will be looking over the paddocks, stressed about the payouts. The husband and wife won't be cuddling. That all comes back to how they define success. So we've got to do the same in our own lives, whether we're farmers or not. We've got to ask ourselves, how do we define success in our families as a dad, as a husband, um, as, a, as an athlete, as a businessman? And, and that's, that's, going to, oh, that's so powerful. That's going to define what people will then say about you when you die. Mm. It's that powerful. So that's probably the key message. The book's Unleashing Greatness. Now, it's not on Kindle yet because I've got a bit, there are lots of people overseas will listen to this. Well, look, will you get it on Kindle or ebook eventually? It's, I talked to the publisher about that and they said because it's a sort of a, a um, workbook format, yep. it makes it harder to put it onto an ebook or Kindle. So I'm not sure how we. We might have to just adjust the structure of the book to get it on there. Yeah, because you can get it from New Zealand. Um, yep. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. <clears throat> um, it's a really good book, highly recommend it. Obviously, you guys listen to David this is us, Aaron, so he's got a lot of wisdom to share. And as he's saying, it is kind of a workbook, so it's actually about you working on yourself, which is really great yes. as well. Um, so you can get it. Um, it's just, you know, if eventually if it does become an ebook, I'll flick me an email, David, and I'll just let everyone know. But um, thank you so much for your time, mate. It's just You're so passionate about what you do and your message is so great and you're obviously helping a lot of people you know in your own community and in the work you're doing so keep up the great work mate and thank you so much for your time cheers i really enjoyed it thanks very much Right, Tim, I hope you really enjoyed that interview with david i know i enjoyed just sitting down and talking with him and um I love the thing I love is, and, and you, know, you, you often hear me doing this with some of the people I get on, because, and I've talked about this on the show, is this kind of idea of the, the expert who sometimes is closed in, uh, in what they're willing to open up about. And with, you know, I chuck that question at David, or what's the thing you need to work on? I just loved how open he was to his, his own growth. And I think that's something that's really important for all of us to be able to communicate, especially for those who are trying to help others. Um, David's got a great book called out, and it's called Unleashing Greatness. And the reason he wrote it actually was he has a foundation that he's a part of called Pathway1Foundation.co.nz. And you can actually get the book on there. And, and Pathway1, 
foundation is very much just about kind of his philosophy really david's kind of philosophy of a pathway to courage for our youth and so it's just a really great organization that's out there trying to get amongst it and getting youth to learn some very important life lessons and all the profit from this book are going towards you know this foundation so again overseas i'm not sure of how the the um the shipping would work overseas, but I'm sure you could get it if you want to get it. And if they do eventually get an ebook version out, I will let you guys know about it. Uh, for those people in New Zealand, you can just get it from there. Oh, I'm, I'm getting a knock on my door. I'm in a hotel room right now. Give me a second. Just in my room service. <laughs> room service knocked on the door as I'm doing the show. I'm back from the room service once again. The David's book. Um, yeah. And the nice thing about it is a workbook. So it's actually kind of a project for you to work on as you're doing it. So you can check that out. And I'll put the link to that on www.bevanjamesiles.com. Other than that, guys, thanks again to all my patrons of the show. If you want to become a patron, just go to bevanjamesiles.com. I'll be back in a couple of weeks' time. I've got a couple of interviews lined up. I'm actually up in Auckland right now, and one of my workmates is a very inspirational person, and I'm going to be working with them over the next couple of days. So I'm trying to hopefully be able to get them on the show. So, um, but I've also got another interview kind of I need to coordinate. So I've got a few things coming up on the show over the next period of time. Plus, so we'll be back to the Bevan show in two weeks from now. So, as always, how can you help out the show? Spread the word, write iTunes reviews or whatever podcatcher you get your podcasts from, uh, Facebook, social network, and all that kind of stuff as well. I think that's pretty much it for this week, guys. I'll see you guys in a couple of weeks, and you guys keep on doing what you're doing.